Chapter One, Part Two of Twenty Years of the Republic by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Return of Democracy, Part Two. Quote from Mr. Blaine. In my amendment, I have accepted Jefferson Davis from amnesty. I do not place his exclusion on the ground that Mr. Davis was, as he has been commonly called, the head and front of the rebellion, because on that ground I do not think the exception would be tenable. Mr. Davis was, in that respect, as guilty, no more so, no less so, than thousands of others who have already received the benefit and grace of amnesty. Probably he was far less efficient as an enemy of the United States, probably he was far more useful as a disturber of the councils of the Confederacy than many who have already received amnesty. It is not because of any particular and special damage that he, above others, did to the Union, or because he was personally or especially of consequence that I accept him. But I accept him on this ground, that he was the author, knowingly, deliberately, guiltily, and willfully, of the gigantic murders and crimes at Andersonville. Mr. Blaine then proceeded to describe in vivid language the sufferings of the Union soldiers confined in the prison pen at Andersonville. He dwelt with all the power of a consummate orator upon the horrors of that loathsome place. He pictured the miseries of starvation and disease, the insults and ingenious cruelty of the jailer Vers, and he stirred the indignation of his northern hearers by painting the dreadful manhunts in which savage bloodhounds had been set upon the track of escaping prisoners. He accepted from his condemnation the people of the South, and directly charged the crimes of Andersonville upon Jefferson Davis. The poor victim Vers deserved his death for brutal treatment and the murder of many victims but it was a weak policy on the part of our government to allow Jefferson Davis to go at large and hang Vers. Vers was nothing in the world but a mere subordinate, and there was no special reason for singling him out for death. I do not say he did not deserve it. He deserved no mercy, but his execution seemed like skipping over the president, superintendent, and board of directors in the case of a great railroad accident and hanging the brakeman of the rear car. It is often said that we shall lift Mr. Davis again into great consequence by refusing him amnesty. This is not for me to consider. I only see before me when his name is presented a man who, by a wave of his hand, by a nod of his head, could have put an end to the atrocious cruelties at Andersonville. Some of us had kinsmen there, most of us had friends there, all of us had countrymen there. In the name of those kinsmen, friends, and countrymen, I here protest, and shall with my vote protest, against calling back and crowning with the honors of full American citizenship the man who organized that murder. Mr. Hale of Georgia replied to Mr. Blaine in a very able, temperate, and, as one reads it over now, convincing speech so far as the complicity of Mr. Davis was concerned but he and his associates from the South made the serious tactical mistake of charging that Confederate prisoners had been ill-treated in the North. This gave Mr. Blaine another chance, and amid a scene of indescribable excitement he returned to the attack as brilliant and even more exasperating than before. The debate continued for several days, during which the House at times became a bear garden. But through all the tumult Mr. Blaine was the one conspicuous figure. The whole country was stirred as it had not been for many years. The passions of the war revived and flamed up as fiercely as in the early sixties. The name of Blaine of Maine was in all men's mouths, and the North gloried in his victory, which was the victory of a partisan, but which was, nevertheless, magnificent. 
the feeling of his admirers was well expressed a few weeks later by Colonel Robert Ingersoll, note 8, page 20, who with florid yet effective eloquence paid this tribute to his leader. Like an armed warrior, like a plumed knight, James G. Blaine marched down the halls of the American Congress and threw his shining lance full and fair against the brazen forehead of every traitor to his country. From the moment of this spectacular exhibition, Mr. Blaine was an inevitable candidate for the presidency. But the fierce white light which beats upon a throne is no more fierce than that which beats upon a presidential aspirant. It was turned at once upon Mr. Blaine's whole past career. Every incident and every act of his were now subjected to minute investigation by his enemies and rivals. It was not long before a cloud was cast upon his personal integrity. Like a dank mist which rises at nightfall over marshy ground, there rose a vague, impalpable belief that in his public life he had not had a due regard for his own honor. Beginning with mere hints and ending with public accusations, a dozen stories grew until they filled the minds of everyone about him. It was said that Mr. Blaine had pledged a number of worthless railroad bonds to the Union Pacific Railway Company in return for a loan of $64,000, which had never been repaid. It was also charged that without consideration he had received bonds of the Little Rock and Fort Smith Railroad. Still another rumor said that while the Speaker of the House, he had left the chair and asked one of the members to make a point of order which would be sustained by him, and which would be favorable to a railway company in which Mr. Blaine was interested. Among a very few it began to be whispered confidentially that there existed letters written by Mr. Blaine to a business associate which, if found, would prove that the ex-Speaker had had corrupt transactions with the Northern Pacific Company. These reports obtained so widespread a currency that Mr. Blaine was forced to rise in his place and bring the matter to the attention of the House. He read a letter from the treasurer of the Union Pacific and from Colonel Thomas A. Scott, the president of that railway, denying the story of the worthless bonds. He read another letter from Morton, Bliss, and Company, who were alleged to have cashed the draft for $64,000 mentioned in the story, but who now declared that no such draft had been presented to them. Mr. Blaine went on to say that he had never owned the Little Rock and Fort Smith bonds, which he was said to have received without any consideration. Apparently, his name was cleared. He was, of course, extremely anxious to avoid investigation at the hands of Congress. The time for the National Republican Convention was drawing near. Many states had already instructed their delegates to support his candidacy. That he should be the subject of an investigation for corrupt transactions while his name was before the convention would be fatal to his chances, and he desired above all things to stave it off. Nevertheless, the House, which was strongly democratic, ordered its Judiciary Committee to make such an investigation, though in the resolution ordering it, Mr. Blaine was not specifically named. This was on May 2nd, and at the first sessions of the committee the evidence was corroborative of Mr. Blaine's assertions. On May 31st, however, a very curious incident occurred. There was brought before the committee a man named James Mulligan. Mulligan had at one time been a clerk for Mr. Jacob Stanwood, the brother of Mrs. Blaine, and later a bookkeeper for Warren Fisher, Jr., a businessman of Boston who had had close relations with the management of the Little Rock and Fourth Smith Railroad. While Mr. Mulligan was testifying, he chanced to mention very quietly that he had in his possession certain letters written by Mr. Blaine to Warren Fisher, Jr. At once it was observed that Mr. Blaine grew pale and gave every evidence of great excitement. 
A moment later, in a whisper, he asked a friend on the committee to move an immediate adjournment. The gentleman in question did so on the plea of illness, and the committee rose to meet again the following morning. When it so met, it listened to a most extraordinary story. During the brief respite given by the adjournment of the committee, Mr. Blaine had flashed his mind over all the possibilities of the situation. He knew that Mulligan had letters which, if made public by Mulligan himself, would be interpreted by everyone in a sense extremely unfavorable to Mr. Blaine. He knew that these letters would surely be asked for by the committee so soon as it should reconvene in the morning. To prevent this, and to gain time, he must act at once. He therefore went to the Riggs' house, where Mulligan was staying, and met Mulligan, Fisher, and one Atkins in a private room. There he first asked to see the letters which Mulligan had with him. When this request was refused, he pleaded with all the earnestness of a man whose future was at stake that the letters might not be given to the committee. Mulligan declined to surrender them. He said that he had no wish to injure Mr. Blaine, but that he must keep the letters in order to protect himself in case his testimony were impeached. Mr. Blaine asked to read the letters, promising on his word of honor to return them after reading. Mulligan then handed the letters to Mr. Blaine, who read them very carefully, put them into his pocket, and carried them away with him. Such was the story which Mulligan under oath told to the committee when it met on the following morning. Note 9 Page 23 and 24. Meanwhile, Mr. Blaine had secured advice from eminent counsel, Senator Matthew H. Carpenter and Judge Jeremiah Black, to the effect that he was not bound to return the letters. He therefore refused to do so at the request of the committee, and the matter for the moment rested there. The case, however, looked very black for Mr. Blaine. He had possession of the letters, to be sure, yet his conduct was everywhere interpreted as giving evidence of guilt. Great excitement prevailed throughout the country, and the friends of Mr. Blaine were everywhere dismayed. It soon appeared, however, that what he had done was only part of a well-conceived plan which did credit to his resourcefulness and audacity. On June 5th, Mr. Blaine rose in the house and claimed the floor on a question of privilege. He at once proceeded to recite the events which had led up to the incident just narrated, and then, referring to Mulligan, he spoke as follows. This man had selected, out of correspondence running over a great many years, letters which he thought would be peculiarly damaging to me. He came here, loaded with them. He came here for a sensation. He came here primed. He came here on that particular errand. I was advised of it, and I obtained those letters under circumstances which have been notoriously scattered throughout the United States and are known to everybody. I claim I have the entire right to those letters, not only by natural right, but upon all the precedents and principles of law, as the man who held those letters in possession held them wrongfully. The committee that attempted to take those letters from that man for use against me proceeded wrongfully. They proceeded in all boldness to a most defiant violation of the ordinary private and personal rights which belong to every American citizen. Then there went forth everywhere the idea and impression that because I would not permit that man, or any man whom I could prevent, from holding as a menace over my head my private correspondence, there must be something in it most deadly and destructive to my reputation. Now, Mr. Speaker, I say that I have defied the power of the House to compel me to produce those letters. I speak with all respect to this House. I know its powers, and I trust that I respect them. But I say this house has no more power to order what shall be done or not done with my private correspondence than it has with what I shall do in the nurture and education of my children. Not a particle. 
the right is as sacred in the one case as it is in the other. I am ready for any extremity of contest or conflict in behalf of so sacred a right. Throughout this animated and even fiery justification of his right, the crowded house had listened in breathless silence and with a tension of feeling which could almost be felt. There was abundant sympathy with Mr. Blaine. Even his adversaries were sorry for him. He seemed like a man driven into a corner and fighting for his very life. Yet the suppression of the letters looked only the more utterly damning. But at this moment, after a brief pause, Mr. Blaine dealt a master stroke which he had planned with consummate art, and which he now delivered with a dramatic power that was thrilling. Raising his voice and holding up a packet, he went on. And while I am so, I am not afraid to show the letters. Thank God Almighty, I am not afraid to show them. There they are. There is the very original package. And with some sense of humiliation, with a mortification that I do not pretend to conceal, with a sense of outrage which I think any man in my position would feel, I invite the confidence of forty-four millions of my countrymen while I read those letters from this desk. The tension was broken. The whole assembly burst out into frantic and prolonged applause. Then Mr. Blaine read the letters, one by one, with comments and explanations of his own. Having done so, he faced one of the Democratic members of the committee, Mr. Proctor Knott, and in the course of a rapid dialogue brought out the fact that Mr. Knott had received a cablegram from a Mr. Caldwell, whose knowledge of the whole affair was very intimate, and that Mr. Knott had apparently suppressed it. The scene at the end of this exciting parliamentary duel baffled all description. The House went mad and for fifteen minutes there reigned a pandemonium amid which the speaker was helpless in his efforts to restore even a semblance of order. Mr. Blaine, for the moment, had won a brilliant triumph. He had restored and strengthened the faith of all his followers, and had turned apparently inevitable disaster into victory. He had not, however, played the ghost of the railway scandals. Reading over the so-called mulligan letters in cold type, a great number of Mr. Blaine's own party associates found in them evidence, if not of actual corruption, at least of so blunted a sense of official propriety as to make Mr. Blaine no longer seem a fitting candidate for the highest office in the land. From that time he had to face not only the opposition of the Democratic Party, but the mistrust of thousands of Republicans, among whom were men of the highest character and influence. The Mulligan letters showed that Mr. Blaine, in the years when they were written, had been suffering from what he called very pressing and painful pecuniary embarrassment. Writing to Mr. Fisher, he described himself as left helpless and hopeless, and as crippled and deranged in all my finances. A complicated series of financial transactions stood revealed, and also a willingness on the part of Mr. Blaine to secure especial consideration on the ground of his influence as an officer of the government. The following letters are the two which were afterwards most often quoted. The first was dated June 29, 1869. My dear Mr. Fisher, Your offer to admit me to a participation in the new railway enterprise is in every respect as generous as I could expect or desire. I thank you very sincerely for it, and in this connection I wish to make a suggestion of a somewhat selfish character. It is this. You spoke of Mr. Caldwell disposing of a share of his interest to me. If he really designs to do so, I wish he would make the proposition definite so that I could know just what to depend on. Perhaps if he waits till the full development of the enterprise, he might grow reluctant to part with the shares. And I do not by this mean any distrust of him. I do not feel that I shall prove a dead head in the enterprise if I once embark in it, 
I see various channels in which I know I can be useful. Very hastily and sincerely your friend, J.G. Blaine. The second letter was marked confidential and was dated at Washington, April 16, 1876. My dear Mr. Fisher, you can do me a very great favor, and I know it will give you pleasure to do so, just as I would do for you under similar circumstances. Certain persons and papers are trying to throw mud at me to injure my candidacy before the Cincinnati Convention, and you may observe they are trying it in connection with the Little Rock and Fort Smith matter. I want you to send me a letter such as the enclosed draft. You will receive this tomorrow, Monday evening, and it will be a favor I shall never forget if you will at once write me the letter and mail it the same evening. The letter is strictly true and is honorable to you and to me, and will stop the mouths of slanderers at once. Regard this letter as strictly confidential. Do not show it to anyone. The draft is in the hands of my clerk, who is as trustworthy as any man can be. If you can't get the letter written in season for the nine o'clock mail to New York, please be sure to mail it during the night so that it will start first mail Tuesday morning. But if possible, I pray you to get it in the nine o'clock mail Monday evening. Kind regards to Mrs. Fisher. Sincerely, burn this letter. J.G.B. A third letter dated October 4, 1869, made it evident that Mr. Blaine, while Speaker of the House, had sent his page to General Logan, suggesting a point of order which, if made, would block a scheme unfriendly to a land grant in which Mr. Blaine's financial associates were interested. Such, in brief, is the history of the famous Mulligan letters which sufficed to prevent Mr. Blaine's nomination for the presidency in 1876 and 1880, and which now, in 1884, from the outset of his candidacy, were printed and scattered broadcast over the country by his political opponents. Note 10, page 28. The Democratic candidate against whom Mr. Blaine had now to make his fight was a man of a wholly antithetical type. Mr. Cleveland was in no respect a brilliant man. The son of a clergyman, and early left to make his own way in the world, he had, like his rival, been a teacher, and had later taken up the practice of the law in Buffalo. There he had held some minor public offices. In 1863 he was assistant district attorney for the county, and from 1870 to 1873 he had served as sheriff. He first attracted attention outside of his own city when in 1881 he was elected mayor of Buffalo by a combination of Democrats and Independents. In this office, he instituted reforms and defeated various corrupt combinations, while his liberal use of the veto power maintained a wise economy. In 1882, he had received the Democratic nomination for the governorship of New York, and had been elected by the remarkable plurality of 192,000 votes. Note 11, page 29. Mr. Cleveland was a type of man such as had not before come to the front as a presidential possibility. He represented the practical, everyday, usual citizen of moderate means and no very marked ambitions, a combination of the businessman and the unimportant professional person, blunt, hard-headed, brusque, and unimaginative, and with a readiness to take a hand in whatever might be going on. His education was of the simplest, his general information presumably not very large, and his interest in life was almost wholly bounded by the limits of his own locality. As a practicing lawyer he was well thought of, yet his reputation had not gone much beyond the local circuit. A bachelor, he had no need of a large income. His spare time was spent with companions of his own tastes. His ideal of recreation was satisfied by a quiet game of pinochle in the back room of a respectable beer garden, 
and perhaps this circumstance in itself is sufficient to give a fair notion of his general environment. He was, indeed, emphatically a man's man, homo inter homines, careless of mere forms, blunt of speech, and somewhat primitive in his tastes. But he had all the virile attributes of a Puritan ancestry. His will was inflexible. His force of character was extraordinary. He hated shams, believed that a thing was either right or wrong, and when he had made up his mind to any course of action, he carried it through without so much as a moment's wavering. So great was the confidence which his character inspired, that when a committee of the independent voters of Buffalo called upon him for the purpose of urging him to stand for the mayoralty, they asked him for no written pledges, but accepted his simple statement as an adequate guarantee. Cleveland says that if elected he will do so and so, they told the people. And the people elected him, because they knew his word to be inviolable. As governor, Mr. Cleveland entered upon a wider field, and one that must have seemed at first a place of limitless exactions. But his lack of imagination stood him in good stead. He bent his back to the burden and did each day's work as it came. A stranger to large responsibilities and retaining much of the narrowness of the provincial businessman, he viewed all questions as equally important, attending personally to all his correspondence, looking for himself into every item and detail of executive business, and giving hours of time each day to minutiae which the merest clerk could have cared for with quite as much efficiency. This, however, was only one manifestation of the conscientiousness that showed itself far more commendably in higher matters. The rough, blunt independence of the man made him indifferent to the insidious influences that rise like a malarial mist about the possessor of high political office. Subtleties of suggestion were lost on this brusque novice, and anything more pointed than suggestion roused in him a cross-grained spirit that brooked no guidance or control. He forged ahead in his own way with a sort of bull-necked stubbornness, but with a power and energy which smoother politicians were compelled to recognize as very real. He cared nothing for popularity. He vetoed a bill requiring the street railways to reduce their fares, thereby offending thousands. He followed it up by a veto of another bill which granted public money to sectarian schools, and in consequence he estranged great masses of his Catholic supporters. He defied the Tammany leaders in the legislature and made still more powerful enemies. But when the people at large had come to understand him, they admired his independence and applauded this burly, obstinate, tactless, but intensely earnest man. They were pleased when the professional politicians were trampled on. And even the labor representatives, to whose dictation Mr. Cleveland had sturdily refused to bow, at heart respected him for his firmness and his honesty. In the end, his record as governor of New York secured for him the nomination for the presidency. Against the brilliant, subtle, and magnetic Blaine was pitted the plodding, incorruptible, courageous Cleveland. The campaign opened immediately after the two candidates had been nominated. Those Republicans who were opposed to Mr. Blaine formed an organization at a conference held in New York on July 22nd and prepared an address which was issued on the 30th by the so-called National Committee of Republicans and Independents, of which George William Curtis was the chairman and George Walton Green the secretary. At once the movement assumed formidable proportions, and it was seen that thousands of Republicans were rallying to Cleveland, not because they had given up their party, but because they could not tolerate their party's candidate. Among them were men who had been identified with the Republican Party from its earliest years. Henry Ward Beecher, William Everett, 
George Dickner Curtis, Carl Schurz, and James Freeman Clark. These independents received the popular name of Mugwumps, a word which, having been first employed in a semi-political sense by the Indianapolis Sentinel in 1872, gained its popular currency through the New York Sun, which began using it on March 23, 1884. These Mugwumps, or political purists, had been described by Mr. Blaine four years earlier in a letter to General Garfield in which he said, They are noisy but not numerous, pharisaical but not practical, ambitious but not wise, pretentious but not powerful. This sentence was extremely characteristic of the man who wrote it. Mr. Blaine was an old campaigner. He knew that his record would be violently assailed. He felt, however, that he had drawn all the enemy's fire in 1876 and 1880, and that in consequence their ammunition had been practically exhausted. He had no intention of conducting a defensive battle. With all his natural aggressiveness, therefore, he began to carry the war into the enemy's country. At first he trusted to the old sectional issue which had won so many elections for his party. The memories of the Civil War were again invoked. The perils of the Solid South and of the South once more in the saddle were pictured by a thousand party orators. But somehow or other this issue had, in sporting parlance, gone stale. The new generation which had grown up since the war cared little for these things, and the older generation had grown weary of them. Mr. Cleveland was sneered at because he had not enlisted in the army but had sent a substitute. To this it was answered that he was then the sole support of a widowed mother, and that neither had Mr. Blaine himself enlisted nor sent a substitute. A feeling of dismay affected the Republican managers when it was discovered that the war issue was no longer powerful. The tariff question was then taken up and hammered at industriously. This had proved sufficient to pull Mr. Garfield through in 1880, and much was hoped from it by Mr. Blaine. The Democratic platform, however, had been very wisely drawn, and its tariff plank decidedly appealed to the common sense of the American people. It said, Knowing full well that legislation affecting the occupations of the people should be cautious and conservative in method, not in advance of public opinion, but responsive to its demands, the Democratic Party is pledged to revise the tariff in a spirit of fairness to all interests. But in making reductions in taxes, it is not proposed to injure any domestic industries, but rather to promote their healthy growth. The necessary reduction in taxation can and must be effected without depriving American labor of the ability to compete successfully with foreign labor and without imposing lower rates of duty than will be ample to cover any increased cost of production which may exist in consequence of the higher rate of wages prevailing in this country. Sufficient revenue to pay all the expenses of the federal government can be got under our present system of taxation, from custom-house taxes on fewer imported articles, bearing heaviest on articles of luxury, and bearing lightest on articles of necessity. End of Chapter 1, Part 2